0: Welcome to Inside the Lab at Formula 4 Media. I'm Emily Walzer. Today we're speaking with David Costello, who wears many professional hats on a daily basis, including business executive, industry advocate, lobbyist, co-author of US patents in the area of advanced materials, an active board member of the Appalachian Mountain Club, the Conservation Alliance, and the Trustees of Reservations. We caught up with David today to talk about his company, Rising Tide Associates, his nonprofit organization, the Warrior Protection and Readiness Coalition, and learn his views on made in America manufacturing. David brings more than 20 years of marketing and external affairs experience to his work developing federal, state, and commercial business opportunities for corporate and nonprofit clients. We're particularly interested in David's expertise within the domestic textile and footwear industries and his outlook for 2016 and beyond. Hello, David.
1: Good afternoon.
0: Rising Tide Associates is described as a boutique public affairs firm that uniquely integrates government affairs, business development, and public relations services into strategies that lead to business growth. Can you please explain how Rising Tide is distinctly different from a traditional government relations practice and why you felt a need for a new approach when you founded the company?
1: Sure, thank you. It's a great question. There's a lot of people that are government relations experts, and they're primarily just lobbyists, and their job is to interact with the political people to try and influence decisions and benefit a business or a nonprofit. What I bring to the table is my experience comes out of business and manufacturing. I've been involved with... You know, product development and business development and strategic relationships and public relations and the government relations. And what we do is roll that all up together and apply it to a problem a business may have to help affect change and grow their business. I truly understand the need to grow a business at the bottom line, and I truly believe in U.S. manufacturing. Most of our clients are manufacturers here in the United States. Scattered all about uh, this country, but whenever I go into a plant, I get excited because I think there's nothing more important than touching and feeling a product to help to continue to innovate it. And so we try and take our understanding of that need, tell that story in an appropriate way, and help advance U.S. manufacturing and the needs of our clients.
0: I think it would be good, actually, for us to understand, our listeners to understand a little bit more if you could give a couple examples. Maybe name a couple of your clients that you work with and or a couple projects that you're working on with them now or have recently been successful. Sure. So uh,
1: one of the things that we're working on that you're aware of is we work with uh, Vibram USA and also Wolverine Worldwide, uh, two clients of ours, both in the footwear space. And we are presently engaged in developing a completely U.S.-made athletic shoe, which has not been done in a very long time, decades. And the reason for this is I have an understanding of something called the Berry Amendment, which requires domestic production of the textile and footwear-related products that the Department of Defense buys. So right now, if you joined the Army, you would be issued a uniform kit, and it has everything in there from your towels, to your boots, to your socks, to your underwear, your combat uniforms, your helmet, um, and everything in there, 100% from the yarn for is is American-made, except for your athletic shoes. And the Department of Defense got away from this back in the early 2000s because no one in the athletic footwear business cared and was paying attention. And all the production had gone overseas, for the most part. Um, working with Vibram and Wolverine Worldwide, who own Saucony, Uh, We saw an opportunity here to sustain the industrial base for overall footwear manufacturing and have U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines wear U.S.-made shoes when they're doing their physical training. So we've been engaged uh, on the product development side. Uh, You need to figure out, okay, we need every stitch and component made in the U.S., which those in the footwear business know is not something that's common anymore. We need great design and development and manufacturing in the U.S., which some people do. Um, and Saucony is going to be doing in Big Rapids, Michigan, at the plant where they build combat boots right now. And they have a you know 100-year legacy of building footwear out there. Uh, and then the government relations aspect of it came into play because The Department of Defense is usually slow to change their policy. It's much easier for them to continue along in the way things have always been done and not make any change. So we had to go and advocate, lobby, uh, on behalf of this change, and we worked with a broad spectrum of people that care on the Armed Services Committees, uh, in the Senate and the House of Representatives, and elsewhere. And when you go in and explain this story, first of all, they're shocked that you can't get American-made athletic shoes, which... Those who are outside of the industry uh, may not realize, but they understand that you know soldiers, sailors, and Marines should be wearing American-made product. It helps sustain an industry. It helps sustain manufacturing jobs. So we've rolled that all up together. We got the policy changed by the Department of Defense. We've gotten the componentry figured out. Shoes are now being made in the United States. So soon, within the next year or so, we expect. Uh, American warfighters be training in American-made athletic shoes to the benefit of them as well as the industrial base that's left here.
0: I have two quick questions on that. You make it sound like it was not that hard. It was hard. (laughs) (laughs) Make no mistake. (laughs) And also the time frame for something like that to happen, I imagine it did not happen
1: quickly. It's been three years that we've been working on this and probably longer than that from the original concept. Mm -hmm. You know, The pace of government is slow and uh, something like this just takes time for some of the convincing and then you know there's also the manufacturing parts have to be figured out because you know think about the shoelaces the aglets which is the tip of the shoelace has to be made in the United States you know everything on there all the rubber components and the midsoles things that people have not commonly been doing Uh, the added benefit to this though is once that capability is back which it now is you're able to take those technologies and apply it to other types of footwear. So now you would be able to make a lighter weight combat boot or, you know, some other type of footwear with completely U.S.-made product. And we, we really like that story. We think it's very exciting.
0: That ties into the Berry Amendment. And mm-hmm. I know there's been conversation about the um, necessity of the Berry Amendment, the validity of the Berry Amendment, but you are an advocate for the Berry Amendment. <clears throat> and I believe you told me once that something along the lines you just said now, that it allows us to maintain a base in the United States and allows innovation to flourish. Could you talk about a little bit your view on the Berry Amendment and why it's important for textiles as well as other products?
1: Sure. So, there's a little historical lesson The Berry Amendment came into place in 1941, right before the outbreak of World War II for the United States. And the notion was to maintain an industrial base here so we were not dependent on a perhaps unfriendly country for something essential that you needed for war. It's been the law of the land ever since then. There's been some variation along the way, but it has helped protect an industrial base for textiles and footwear in the U.S., as well as some other industries like specialty metals, titaniums, and things like that that you need for aircraft. So on the whole, it's uh, helped make sure that we maintain that capability uh, we've actually been focused on uh, a group that I'll talk about a little bit later, the Warrior Protection and Coalition, has been focused on expanding the application of the Berry Amendment because it only applies to Department of Defense right now. And so there are companies, a number of companies in the United States, who would not be in business if there was no Berry Amendment. Um, and there are also you know, some sort of very specialty things that only the Department of Defense buys. So if you think about ballistic protection. Combat armor, which is made out of generally woven Kevlar para aramid fibers, Mm -hmm. if you don't have the demand to have that made in the United States, you would be dependent on another country. And having to be dependent on Russia, who's a big producer of these sorts of things, China, who's a big producer of these types of things, for your ballistic vests, for your body armor, is probably not in the interest of the United States. So we see that as essential to the Uh, capabilities of the Department of Defense. And every year on Capitol Hill, I put together a coalition. We go and we speak about how important this is to maintain and expand.
0: I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. There was recent passage of the U.S. Defense Act for this uh, 2016. Could you explain what that act is all about? And I did read about one industry insider who described the passage as being a big, whew, that it was Good news, in a way. Would you agree with that? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what this passage is
1: about. So the, the, what you're referring to is the National Defense Authorization Act. That is our annual defense bill, which has passed every year for almost 50 years. And Congress is not passing hardly anything these days. This is the one must pass bill, passed bill, that has to go through Unfortunately, at the end of last year, it did get done. And it essentially sets the policy and spending levels for the Department of Defense for the fiscal year that we're now in, FY16. The other component to that, which I think you the person was referring to, is there's been a lot of trouble with sequestration, which occurred in the United States government, which never was supposed to happen. And we're not going to get into that because it's gobbledygook, wonky stuff that... Everyone will be bored with. But the net effect was it greatly reduced spending and discretionary spending within all agencies, including the Department of Defense. Last year, they passed a two year budget deal, which sets the budget, overall budget levels for every agency. That relieved some of the pressure from sequestration. And so that allows agencies to be able to understand their top line budget number, have a general understanding how much money they're going to have to spend on the various programs that they have to support. And just has made good governance somewhat easier for the ne- for, for this year and next year. So it is a relief. It is positive. Uh, right now, we're working on policy for the FY17 bill, uh, which will fund you know the the year that starts for the government on October 1st. Okay. So, um, do you see
0: this as a trend, a positive trend going forward, or is it never? It's always a year <clears throat> to more of a year-to-year, year, and maybe the election will have something.
1: I think it's definitely a positive step that they passed that. It would have been disastrous if they had not. Both things. The budget bill had the budget bill had to pass. Defense bill has to pass. That's you know, you get into issues where you're not able to pay soldiers, which is nuts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so people understand that this these things need to happen. I'm hopeful that we start getting to what's, you know, to, to a more, a trend of uh, bills passing in what they call regular order. We haven't had regular order in Congress for a number of years. There's been a lot of dysfunction, which everybody knows. This year is going to be ugly, too, because you have a presidential election, and it's an election year, and lots of members are running for Congress, so nothing's going to get done. But I do expect the defense bill will pass again with some drama and last-minute histrionics. And next year, I'm hopeful that things will have calmed down. We'll have the president will have been elected. It's a non-election year. Things will be, I think, at a calmer level at that point.
0: I don't want to go too far into our conversation without backtracking a moment. um, Tell us a little bit about the other um, very important part of what you do on a daily basis with your warrior protection and readiness coalition. Can Mm -hmm. you explain what that is and what that's all about?
1: Sure. So... Because I've been working with a lot of these U.S. manufacturers in the organizational clothing, textiles, footwear, armor, uh, ballistics side of the U.S. industrial base, we developed great relationships with the program management within the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And they appreciate that we are out there advocating to make sure that they have the funding that they need so they can properly equip and outfit warfighters. You never want to get to a space again or a time again when you're sending people into combat without everything they need, which happened at the beginning of the Iraq War, people did not have adequate body armor or, and other things. So our goal is to make sure that does not happen. During you know 2009 timeframe, the United States was involved with two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, at you know, full blast, and spending on defense was heavy, and there was plenty of money flowing to sustain everything at that point. But leadership was concerned about what would happen after. And we heard, I was called into a meeting with a colonel in the Army to talk about the future and what industry should be doing to prepare for that. And he did this purposefully because a colonel in the Army is not allowed to lobby Congress on what he's going to need, but he knows that industry can. And it's in the Army's interest and industry's interest to make sure that they Uh, are are working together to sustain the capability for the soldiers. So we pulled together, at that time, nine companies in the industry uh, who were interested parties, and we started to advocate for thoughtful spending on basic programs for the military branches to keep soldiers, sailors, and Marines protected. Um, That's now grown to more than 40 companies. And we have people in there, everything from all the folks that make the ballistic goggles that save people's eyesight, to the helmet makers, to the textile companies that make the combat fabric, the camouflage clothing, to the footwear people, to the socks, to the base layers, to uh, DuPont and BAE, to tiny little companies like Wild Things here in Rhode Island. So it's a nice spectrum of the entire supply chain from fiber all the way through to finished goods.
0: That's great. That should continue to
1: grow, you think? And and my goal is to make sure it does. Yeah. Um, And you know, the good news is is that Congress really appreciates what we're doing because we just did our legislative summit in March this month, earlier this month, and we brought we had Mm fifty leaders of companies in Washington, D.C., and we had you know folks come from Capitol Hill, members of Congress, come and address our group and. We went to the Hill, and we did 70 meetings on Capitol Hill over the period of two days, and we uh, we are received with welcome open arms because all those people employ manufacturing jobs in their states. Mm -hmm. All of them are making hard-to-make products that are essential for the mission, and they're all trying to do the right thing on behalf of those who serve our country. So we know we're on the side of the good, and what we've done is before in Congress and even in the Department of Defense wasn't an awareness that this is an industry. This is a group of companies that all work together to provide this capability, and it needs to be sustained, just like you have an aircraft industry or a shipbuilding industry. You need to sustain this organizational clothing and personal protective equipment industry. And that's what we're going to continue to do.
0: Well, I'm just going to end here. If you would care to maybe comment, the political scene has certainly been interesting so far in 2016, and I'm wondering if you feel, what you feel about presidential candidates or what you think would be good for your uh, membership as far as you know, going forward in terms of the, the political um, landscape at the moment in the U.S.?
1: I think what will be great for our membership, for the WPRC and for our industry in general and our country in general is when the election is over. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I know... We've had a very interesting time. Uh, What happens at the presidential level likely will affect the down-ballot candidates, meaning those who are running for the Senate and the House. uh, That can cause some changes. Right now, the Republicans control the Senate and the House. That could switch, especially in the Senate. There could be uh, Democratic control of the Senate. That happens, and we're sitting here in Rhode Island today, and the ranking member of the Armed Services Committee is Senator Jack Reed. He would become the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. Jack Reed knows all about the textile industry. He served in the Armed Services, and he's a big supporter of what the WPRC does. With that said, you know we have got bipartisan support for it. Like I said, when we go in, this is not a Republican or Democratic issue. It's, it's good governance. It's supporting the warfighter issue. So I just think it'll be good when all the noise is... Past and people are settled in their jobs and our job is to go out and work and meet any of the new people because there always are staff turns over members of Congress come and go our, our mission remains the same is continue to educate and advocate and make sure that uh, things are taken care of in the long run
0: thank you very much david you have been listening to inside the lab at formula 4 media i'm
1: emily walzer